Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlocks big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book When Breath Becomes Air. For every 10,000 people in the modern world, of those under the age of 36, only 0.12 will contract lung cancer. The book's author Paul Kalanithi happened to be one of this tiny unfortunate minority. At Stanford University, Kalanithi attained dual honors in his bachelor's degree in English literature and human biology. He went on to earn a Master of Philosophy in History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Finally, at the Yale School of Medicine, his stellar research was acknowledged with a PhD. During his six to seven years of residency, he worked a hundred hours a week. For his efforts in this period of intensive research, the American Academy of Neurological Surgery acknowledged him with their highest award. In short, at Stanford University, he was hailed as one of the most gifted doctors. However, in his final year of residency, as he was poised to receive a tenure-track professorship as well as an opportunity to head his own neuroscience lab at Stanford University School of Medicine, Kalanithi was denied the time to savor the fruits of his years of hard labor. He was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer and forced to confront his mortality. Death itself is not shocking but having life snatched away prematurely often leaves people with a tragic sense of regret. From the moment when a person is diagnosed with cancer, they will inevitably yearn to set the clock back and live their life again. Yet, a fact is a fact. Going back to the old life, as well as the future that one imagined, is now seen to be nothing more than extravagant dreams. What should one do in this predicament? Merely wait for death to come? No. Paul Kalanithi decided to continue living as he would have lived had he not been given his tumultuous cancer diagnosis. The Paul of the past had wanted a child. After much deliberation, a post-cancer Paul made the same decision to extend his family, even if this might make saying goodbye even more excruciating. Paul had always regarded medicine to be his lifelong mission. After his diagnosis, Paul went back to the operating theater whenever his physical condition allowed. Paul had always wanted to write. So, despite suffering intense physical pain from his condition, he propped himself up and forced his weakened frame to write ceaselessly. And finally, he completed When Breath Becomes Air. Although cancer had the effect of accelerating Paul's life to its end, he remained faithful to his heart's desires. He kept asking himself what was meaningful, what was truly important. Then, he channeled all his remaining strength and spirit into those enterprises. When he finally came to the brink and faced death, he smiled. Paul said, I am ready. He passed away with tranquility. His attitude was constant. He ended his life in the same spirit that he set out on his final arduous journey, calm, accepting, and positive in the face of the unimaginable. He never thought to ask, why me, but rather would think, why not me? What happened to Paul was heartbreaking, but he never painted it as a tragedy. Now, let us listen in to Paul's life experiences in three separate parts. Part 1, When in Perfect Health. Part 2, Cease Not Till Death. Part 3, I Am Ready. When Paul was 10, his father had a brilliant opportunity to establish his own regional cardiology practice. This was why the entire family relocated to Kingman, Arizona. Kingman was a sunny little town in the Arizona desert. 
It was also in an area classified by the United States Census as the least educated district in America. There, anyone who made it to university was an exception. Not to mention anyone getting a place at one of the U.S. most prestigious institutions, people like that were really few and far between. Understandably, Paul's mother was anxious. She was terrified that the impoverished school system would transform her children into good-for-nothings. Hence, she acquired a college prep reading list. She used this as a guide and supported her children accordingly. Armed with the reading list, from the tender age of 10, Paul read one after another, from 1984 and The Count of Monte Cristo, to Robinson Crusoe, and many other significant works of literature. When he was 12, his brother Suman, already at college, sent him other books, The Prince, Don Quixote, Le Mort d'Arthur and Brave New World, to name but a few. However, solitary reading was not enough. In order to give her children the best educational opportunities she could imagine, Paul's mother would drive 200 kilometers to Las Vegas so that they could sit their sats, satis, and acts. She even joined the school board to rally the teachers, beseeching them to demand that AP classes be added to the curriculum. She took it upon herself to reform the entire Kingman educational system. She wanted to forge for every child the constructive learning environment that she wanted for her own children. If no one else would do it, she would, with her own bare hands. Supported by his mother's efforts, Paul was finally admitted to Stanford University, where he would soon attend courses relating to English literature. Stanford was a thousand kilometers away from Paul's home. From his perspective, as he was poised to enter the university's dormitory accommodation, he believed he had arrived at a place that brimmed with bright, dazzling hope. He felt like a buzzing electron, about to be released into that strange but sparkling universe. Whenever his relatives asked him about the future and his intended career, Paul did not have an answer. He was uncertain, saying it would likely have something to do with literature and the arts. The only thing Paul was sure about was that he would not be like his father, uncle or brother, he would not wear a white coat and practice as a doctor. However, this literature lover started to harbor an interest in the brain during this particularly long holiday. Paul unwittingly stumbled upon the novel Satan, His Psychotherapy and Cure by the unfortunate Dr. Kassler, JSPS, by the American screenwriter Jeremy Laven. Paul was immediately struck by an assumption in the book that thought is simply a mechanical function of brain activity. For the first time, the importance of the brain crept into Paul's consciousness. Suddenly it occurred to him that literature, one of the most precious treasures of human civilization, could, in fact, materialize only through the workings of the brain. On the night he finished reading the novel, he flipped through the catalog of courses available at Stanford and made a note of all courses related to biology and neuroscience. He decided to study English literature and human biology simultaneously. Gradually, over the next few years, both literature and neuroscience gripped the two sides of Paul's heart. Each bore equal weight. For Paul, literature remained the noblest representation of the life of the mind, whereas neuroscience laid down the most elegant principles for exploring the workings of the brain. Through years of study, Paul gained a deeper understanding of the human brain and one incident left an indelible effect on him. It was in the middle of a neuroscience and ethics course. Paul and his classmates went to visit a hospital for people who had suffered severe brain injuries. The guide at the hospital told the group that usually when the patients had just been admitted, their families would visit frequently. Thereafter these regular visits would become less often, 
turning into weekend visits only and then, in the end, into annual visits. Finally, most family members would move away from the area as if the distance justified their neglect. When he heard this account, Paul was outraged. He could not comprehend how parents could be so cruel to abandon their own children. He gazed at the rows of patients until his eyes met those of a young teenage girl. He held the girl's hand. It was limp. Returning his gesture, the girl looked right at him and smiled. Paul was deeply moved by the girl's smile. After he let go of the girl's hand, Paul's professor remarked, Sometimes, you know, I think it's better if they die. Paul was unable to accept such an idea. He grabbed his things and left. It was not until later that he rationalized the effect of this particular visit. It had added a new dimension to his understanding of the brain. Paul saw that the brain's ability to form relationships makes life meaningful, but sometimes, our brain also has the ability to destroy them. After graduating with a double bachelor from Stanford University, he continued to pursue literature by getting a master's degree in literature at Stanford. However, by the time he had completed his modern thesis, Paul's heart was no longer with literature. His thesis concerned the works of American poet Walt Whitman, titled Whitman and the Medicalization of Personality. In it, Paul conscientiously attempted to describe and understand what Whitman termed the physiological spiritual man. The thesis contained as much neuroscience and history of psychiatry as it did literary criticism. During the research process, Paul was increasingly aware that the study of literature was too politicized and was averse to science. The vast majority of English literature PhDs reacted to science, according to one of the professors, like apes to fire, with sheer terror. The combination of his interests in biology with academic research in literature would always be awkward, just as his thesis, although outstanding and well-received, was remarked as too unorthodox. The thesis did not quite fit into the English department, nor did Paul. While his best friends at university were planning their futures, thinking about heading to New York to pursue lives in the arts, stand-up comedy, journalism, or the media, Paul remained fixated on one question. Where exactly do biology, morality, literature, and philosophy intersect? He had yet to find an answer, but he was increasingly sure that he no longer wanted to continue his literary studies. His inner voice was calling out. It told him to put down his books, set aside literature, and practice medicine. You need to become a doctor, it said. The voice challenged him to confront death and decay and come to truly understand the physiological spiritual man. Therefore, following the suggestions of his professors, Paul threw himself earnestly into pre-medical courses, trying to familiarize himself with chemistry and physics before submitting applications for medical schools. Because of the long application cycle, Paul had a free year after he finished the pre-medical courses. Following the suggestions of his professors, he went to Cambridge to pursue a master's degree in the history and philosophy of science, after which he finally embarked on his journey at the Yale School of Medicine. For newbies who have just entered medical school, it's natural to experience an extreme range of emotions, particularly when faced with their first dissection of a cadaver. As the razor-sharp scalpel slices through the skin, as smoothly as if it were unzipping it, the sinews of a human body part reveal themselves, and they become like the physical embodiment of medical knowledge. The experience will burn a vivid impression on the eyes of the students, an ineffable sense of shame, excitement, revulsion, frustration and awe. Many feelings will rush in all at once together. Students will be overwhelmed in a way that they will never forget. 
Yet, confronting this mix of emotions day after day, the initial shock of pathos and bathos will gradually become masked by a flippant attitude, a sort of callousness and arrogance. A classmate, who would usually drink from a colorful mug decorated with a cute decal, would now happily hammer a chisel into a cadaver's backbone. Paul was no exception. Medical students reduced donors' corpses to objects of inquiry, skinning their limbs, slicing away inconvenient muscles, pulling out the lungs, cutting open the heart, and removing a lobe from a liver, thereby literally stripping a person down into their raw parts, organs, tissues, nerves and muscles. The body's humanity would similarly seem to fall apart into nothing. Occasionally, everyone would silently apologize to the figure lying on the dissection table, not because they felt guilty for what they were doing, but because they no longer cared. Yet, not all medical students are reduced to numb indifference. There are some who will grasp the subtext of academic life, such as Paul's girlfriend, Lucy. Lucy was Paul's classmate at medical school. One day, sat on the sofa of Paul's apartment, they were studying the electrocardiograms used for teaching purposes. After pondering for a while, Lucy correctly identified what this chart represented, a fatal condition. It suddenly dawned on her that the squiggly lines of the electrocardiograms were describing the deterioration of a life. It was a map, a route from a state of vivaciousness to an endpoint of demise. In that instant, her eyes welled with tears, and she wept. His experiences in medical school deepened Paul's understanding of the meaning of mortality. Yet, it was not until after he passed his first stage medical exams and was on his first hospital placements gaining clinical experience that he experienced life and death in the raw. Paul began his training in the obstetrics and gynecology ward. There, he witnessed his first birth as well as his first death. The first patient that Paul encountered on his ward rounds was a young pregnant mother. Her name was Elena Garcia. She was carrying twins and had gone into preterm labor with her twins at only 23 week old. Generally, fetuses should be in their mother's wombs for at least 24 weeks, the minimum viable period for their development. Therefore, the doctors were trying their best to support keeping her pregnancy going for as long as possible. At first, things were going smoothly. Then, all of a sudden, the nurse who was teaching Paul to read the patient's monitor stopped abruptly. She dashed into Elena's ward. Shortly after, several doctors followed her. Everyone made frantic preparations for emergency surgery. The resident doctor called the attending doctor, who blurted out a stream of rapid-fire jargon. Paul's ears picked up its urgent message more than its exact meaning. He quickly gathered that the situation was grave. He could just barely make out that they had only one shot to save the twins, an emergency cesarean section. As the anesthetist helped to calm the patient, the attending doctor spoke impatiently, Come on. We don't have a lot of time. We need to move faster. Rapidly and decisively, he sliced open Elena's belly, cutting through the fascia, muscle, and then the uterus, before reaching his hands in the incision and lifting out the two fetuses. They were purple and no bigger than the surgeon's hands, with skin translucent and eyes fused shut. Rapidly they were rushed to the neonatal intensive care unit. It was as the sun was rising the following morning that Paul's shift came to an end, and he went home to catch up on his sleep. After that, he was assigned to a new mother. This time, in the labor ward, Paul clearly understood the difference between being a medical student and being a doctor. He was confronted not merely with practical questions but the need for decisive action. He knew the theory inside out.
He knew that he needed to pull the baby's head out when the mother was pushing, but when standing between the mother's legs, all he could think about was, what if he pulled too hard? What if he didn't do it right? One mistake could cause irreversible damage to the baby's nervous system. With all the thoughts cluttering his mind, Paul had no idea what to do and just stood still. It was the voice of the attending doctor that brought him back. Following the order, he tentatively took hold of the baby's shoulders as she slipped out. Finally, the baby's whole body emerged easily. This baby was three times the size of the twins from the previous day. After a few minutes, Paul cut the umbilical cord. It was his first successful delivery, a healthy girl. Paul went to find the newborn girl's family and tell them the happy news. Yet, even as the joy of having welcomed new life into the world was fresh and yet to dissipate, Paul learned that the twins of the previous night did not survive. In stark contrast to the blissful scene of the infant girl's family rejoicing, the mother of the twins wept, and their father shuddered in silent grief. Paul had spent barely 24 hours in the hospital by now, but he had already encountered both the joy of life and the sorrow of death at the same time. They are no longer mere expressions in his textbooks. At the hospital, time flew by in the blink of an eye. It was soon the fourth year of Paul's medical study. Many of his classmates chose to specialize in fields like radiology or dermatology, where the pay was good and the work less stressful. There were even students who advocated for the removal of the line we place our patients' interests above our own from their commencement oath. As for Paul, however, he opted to follow his heart's desire and chose the field that he felt offered the most direct confrontation with meaning, identity, and death. That was neurosurgery. On Paul's first day of his specialist study on hospital placement, the chief resident doctor told him, neurosurgery residents aren't just the best surgeons, we're the best doctors in the hospital. That's your goal. Make us proud. A tremendous amount of hard work was required for anyone to become a doctor, let alone be the best. Paul would work a hundred hours every week until his eyes teared from lack of sleep and his head ached. Every day, when he left the hospital, he would stagger across the car park to his vehicle and take a nap in the driver's seat before driving home to collapse into bed. The day for a neurosurgery resident like Paul generally started at 6 in the morning, and sometimes he could not get off work until 10 o'clock at night due to a long operation. On top of these long hours, various administrative tasks would pound on his weary nerves like a hammer striking an anvil. The weight of such pressure drove other resident doctors who started at the hospital alongside Paul out of the field entirely. Paul was different. He persevered, stood his ground, and finally became the chief resident doctor. His skills grew more sophisticated by the day. In the field of neurosurgery, however, remarkable skills alone are not sufficient. Doctors also need to have a profound understanding of a patient's uniqueness and what might be of the highest importance to them, what they hold most dear. This skill is needed because some parts of the brain are almost sacred and inviolable. Even the slightest mistake can utterly destroy certain personality traits or abilities, which may be the ones the patient values the most. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for Buki at Apple Store or Google Play, get your free mind snack now.